Well, here we are again. We have arrived at the dreaded Sunday, Trinity Sunday, where the preacher now is challenged to try to describe the Holy Trinity, the only Sunday that is dedicated to a, a doctrine and not a, a, an event in the life of Jesus. And so we have uh, to do some explaining. The Williams Adams Professor of Philosophical and Systematic Theology at Neshota House, James Griffiths, used to say, well, on Trinity Sunday, the clergy get into the pulpit, they start to preach about the Trinity, become hopelessly confused, raise their hands and say, oh, well, it's all a very great mystery. And it is a very great mystery. But maybe to begin the sermon, it's important for us to have some understanding about what we mean when we use the word mystery. Because I think the popular understanding, or most people believe, that uh, a mystery is something that's unknowable. It's someone that, something that is obscure, something that uh, you can't know in some ways. But there's another definition of mystery uh, as the skills, lore, and practices peculiar to a particular activity or group. You know, one of the names for the Eucharist uh, in the Eastern tradition are the holy mysteries. And I would guess that most people who have been going, coming to the liturgy for a fair amount of time uh, begin to at least have some understanding. In other words, mystery can mean also something that is infinitely knowable. When I started becoming interested in cooking, I did so because cooking to me was a very great mystery. The women in the house did the cooking. I didn't know how it all got produced. It seemed that uh, it, was, it was just baffling. So as I began to cook, I realized that there were, in fact, a lot of things about cooking that were deeply mysterious because I didn't know the meaning of what, it, what I read in a recipe. Reduce by half. But boil it down till it's half the amount that it was before, right? Some form of that. Or reduce to two cups, right? Or pour into a prepared pan. <laughs> Set the pan down, the pan says, I'm prepared. <laughs> But, but after a while, it, it wasn't mysterious anymore. And you begin to learn the techniques and the skills uh, over time that are uh, uh, helpful in learning, in learning how to cook. The one thing that I have noticed, too, my young son is a chef, and he can cook fast. And I guess that's one of the uh, signs, you know, the chef cooks faster than anybody else in the kitchen. And he's fast. So that becomes the mastery of the technique, doesn't it? So that's not so mysterious anymore either. And it's over time and applying yourself so that you develop uh, how to do that sort of thing. 
So I've just gone on and on about this because mystery is not something that you just live in perpetually. Although some people do, they appear to be plankton in the sea and can't figure out how come the things have happened to them that have happened to them, right? But I think most of us don't want to be in that kind of endless cycle. And we want to begin to unpack the mystery of, of our lives. For Christian people, the doctrine of the Trinity, oddly enough, was a way in which uh, people began to give voice uh, to their lived experience of God. And so they wanted to describe God in the ways that they had experienced and seen God in their lives. The doctrine of the Trinity did not get produced from the jump, from the beginning of Christianity. Probably in its final formulations, we're talking about sometime in the 4th century, in the 300s. And there were three guys in Cappadocia, which is in modern Turkey now, called the Cappadocian Fathers. And they produced the doctrine of the Trinity in the form that we have. St. Basil, speaking of cooking, St. <laughs> Basil of Caesarea, Gregory of Nyssa, and Gregory Nazianzus. Two of them were brothers. And uh, the third one was not uh, related to them. But they developed and wrote about the uh, doctrine of the Trinity. And some, one of the others specialized in how we understand the spirit working. What do we mean about God the Father? How do we understand God the Son? And so forth. And we produce now the doctrine of the Trinity. Because of God's infinity and essential unknowability, revelation in the Bible... And in creation must contain an infinite multiplicity of meanings. That's Alan Jones, the former dean of Grace Cathedral. And he goes on to say in the same paragraph, the holy and undivided trinity tells us that God is with us, God loves us, and God calls us without exception into communion. So in the three readings today, we sort of have a reading about God the Father, uh, reading uh, something about God the Son, but also the other two persons of the Trinity, and then God the Holy Spirit in the Gospel from John. So I want to preach on all three because it's an important way of beginning to understand uh, the nature of the triune God. It's also fair to say Carl uh, Rahner, the great Jesuit theologian in the 20th century, I heard him once when I was a student, uh, <clears throat> said, if the doctrine of the Trinity disappeared tomorrow morning at 8 a.m., not many Christians would miss it. But it's not maybe as mysterious uh, as we think that it is. So let me try and explain some things uh, using uh, these readings. In the reading from Proverbs, another commercial message for the Revised Common Lectionary, we read once again, we did earlier in the year, uh, about wisdom. And in the Hebrew word that is used for this means woman wisdom. And what is being described by the writer is the way in which uh, Jews have understood the function of wisdom in the creation, the presence of wisdom in the creation, 
as we were in the beginning of the creative processes. And they used a very domestic image to describe this because woman wisdom, it resonates with the thought world of the time of the writing of Proverbs because it was the women in the house who had the responsibility for imparting wisdom to the children and probably their husbands. And by extension in the world, the idea that this wisdom was now going to be expressed in public life and in home life. And they believed that this was a way that they could appropriate it and understand the nature of God as wisdom. We will, will learn that when people, if we went into, got into a time machine and went back to the ancient Near East during the earthly ministry of Jesus and asked people who had seen him and heard him, who do you think he is? They would say, I believe he is a mashal. A mashal is a teacher of wisdom. So the type of wisdom that is being talked about is not just on the grand scale of some deep philosophical ideas. It's about the ordinary and commonplace practical wisdom about what it is that you do to be the best human being that you can be. Because the starting principle for the Jews and for Christian people is that God made us in his image and called us good. He looked at what he made and called it good. And so by virtue of that, how do we understand that presence in the world? What does it mean for us? And in Proverbs, we get this idea of embodiment. God, as Dr. John McQuarrie would say, as primordial being. Thought thinking itself. You know, the unmoved mover. And the great mystery is how was it that this self-contained being moved out and extended and created when he didn't need to? He was self-sufficient. And so part of this mystery is, is that we now see that this is all part of this plan of thought thinking itself of the presence of wisdom in the world. So Paul today is talking about now the consequences of what it means to come into the Christian fellowship. And by virtue of that, the second part of the Trinity becomes present. God the Son, Jesus. Dr. McQuarrie would call that expressive being. This primordial being is now expressed in all of us, in humanity. And we reflect to the world being made in this image and encourage others who maybe have lost that idea to recover it, that it is possible. And this is where the whole idea comes from Paul in Romans about justification, that we are justified. I'm on a hobby horse about justification because I think... Uh, we've gone off the rails for a long, 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 long time about understanding the centrality of justification and what it actually meant. You know, we forget this, but the Protestant Reformation occurred in the 1500s, and for 500 years, 
We have been talking and thinking about justification the way Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Bullinger and all those people in the Magisterial Reformation were thinking about this. And the questions they wanted answered and the questions that they were asking were not the questions that Paul wanted to know and was asking. And nobody stopped to think, maybe we should find out what was on his mind. Here is what was on his mind. He wanted to know, as a pious Jew, a Jew, he says in, one, in his letters, that if he died and went to God tomorrow, he would be blameless before God. Absolutely blameless. He has dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. He has meticulously kept the law. So he's not worried. He's not worried about himself. What he is worried about is this. Who's in and who's out? And what do you have to do to be in? So he has to ask another question, and that is, how are the Jews in, and how are the Gentiles in, right? Now, some Christians said to themselves, the way you come in and stay in is to keep the law. You have to keep the law just like the Jews. And Paul says, no. If you're a Jew, you're in because of your belief in Christ. And if you're a Gentile, you're in because of your belief in Christ. So Gentiles don't have to keep the law. And Jews are not in because they keep the law. They're in because of their belief in Christ. Now this process begins... By being justified. But it's a very small moment in a person's conversion, if you will. And what it means is the realization that you have been declared blameless before God. In the same way that we understand that in a courtroom. Where the judge declares you not guilty. It doesn't have anything to do with your character. It doesn't even have to do with whether you're guilty or not. You have been declared not guilty. You have been justified, in God. The group, what it says in the Greek text. So those are the questions Paul was asking. Not that it is the centerpiece of uh, the church's view on salvation and it rises and falls. Because the other thing that's part of that that we would read later in Romans is that because of that moment and because of the realization of your belief in Christ, you now participate in Christ. And so what Paul tells you today is you're going to develop and improve and strengthen and deepen your character. As a human being. And some of your character development is going to be involved with suffering. In other words, being equipped, having the tools to be able to go through the challenges and the opportunities that you go through in your life. And you now have the assistance of a personal assistant in Jesus Christ, expressive being. And he is going to assist you in the process of strengthening your character. 
Or some would say, like St. Augustine, realizing the character you have and living into the promise. Become what you already are. Right? So if you think in some way there exists some emotional, spiritual, or mental deformity, this can now be made whole. And more to the point, you don't just experience that, you are able to show others how that might be. By bringing God's healing love and grace to relationship. And so Paul is speaking about this part of the Holy Trinity. They weren't describing this in Trinitarian terms, but what these readings do today is give us with some degree of power and strength how we understand the persons of the Trinity. By the way, in, in the ancient world, the word person does not mean what we mean when we use the word person. Person in the ancient world, at least in the world Paul lived in and the others, had to do with Greek theater. So the person is the mask that you put on your face. And then the other mask, the sad mask, the smiling mask, the laughing mask, right? The persona. So one thing can reflect to the world in three ways. And the early Christians began to say, you know, this, is a, this, this understanding in the thought world is going to be a help to us to describe the mysteries of the work of Christ. What language do we use? Well, we look around and all of a sudden we see, I know, Plato, Aristotle, the Greek playwrights, maybe they'll help us. And the prophets of Israel, they'll help us begin to do that. So they begin to see that the Trinity is somehow an interrelated process of God's work. And the final piece, of course, is the Spirit. And in John's Gospel today, we read about one of my favorite lines in the Gospel according to St. John. Jesus says, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Well, how are we ever going to hear about them? What's the vehicle for this? And certainly the, the community that wrote John's gospel said, it's the spirit of God that now dwells in everyone. The advocate that is being sent as Jesus leaves in his physical presence. And we are the possessors of the Spirit. So the things that we hear are going to come from us. Right? Now what we say in Christianity about that is the pastoral experience of the church. And the pastoral experience of the church is listening to people's stories. Listening to what they tell you. And after you begin to hear a lot of stories on similar themes, you begin to say, well, it looks like we're probably not getting this. We don't understand this in depth. We're going to have to move the community in a direction 
that is going to live more consistently with the Spirit of God operating in people's lives. The pastoral experience of the church. So people that we had heretofore believed are not in, are now in, and always have been. And so then we have to do some personal reflection, emotionally, spiritually, and mentally, personally, on how we're going to take that change. And what are we going to do? How are we going to manage the change? It's a big term these days. Well, we have to manage the change, right? And we do. So this line in John's Gospel has a lot to do with the movement of the Spirit in the church, and also, um, if I do say so, it has deep resonance with the present kerfuffles in the Episcopal Church and in the other mainline churches in this country. What kind of a world do you want to live in? Is your welcome really your welcome? Do you understand the work of the Spirit? Can you, in fact... uh, have the courage and the internal stamina to say you believe the Spirit is leading you in a direction and you wish to commend that to other people. That's a tough part to do, isn't it? You know? Can you develop the internal self-regulation and stamina to meet the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of you on a daily basis? I have other things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And what we've learned in the process of thinking and praying and reflecting over the history of Christianity is those things are continuously being revealed to us. You know what the first one was in the New Testament? Should we preach the gospel to the Gentiles? I've said this to you before. It makes the ordination of women to the priesthood and the episcopate the full inclusion of uh, lesbian and gay people in our common life together look like amateur night. Amateur night. That was a big decision. You know? I read a book in seminary. I'm not going to get into it because it's called The Semantics of Biblical Language by James Barr. And the only thing why it popped into my head is the title of one of the chapters was Athens versus Jerusalem. Okay? Two thought worlds. Boom. All right? Are the Gentiles in or are they out? They're in. And as a matter of fact, the Gentiles now are going to drive the bus for us with regard to the way we have a language to describe what God is like and how we understand God's work in the world. The Spirit of God is described by Dr. John McQuarrie as unitive being. The Spirit is the process that seeks to bring things together as people cooperate with one another and understand the true and deep nature of the community of faith we call the church. There's a wonderful icon, many of you may have seen it, uh, Eastern Orthodox icon of the Holy Trinity. And it is three guys sitting in a room having a bowl of wine together. 
as a community. A shared life. And how they understand that uh, kind of harmony and now move out of themselves. Move out of that thing. So I think the Trinity is important. And I think it has something to do with uh, how we've constituted ourselves over time. Don't focus on the history. Focus on the theology. That's why we have one Sunday that does this. That tells us something about the nature of God. And by extension, our own nature. Because you and I are made in God's image. And I guess the best thing to do this week is to give thanks for being made in God's image and likeness. And becoming what we already are. Amen.